Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to Energy Speaks Back, powered by B2B Energy. My name is Paul Webb, and I'm the founder of B2B Energy, and I'm also your host. And weekly, I present to you energy experts from around the world. Welcome to episode 102, and this is a special episode of Energy Speaks Back Revisited, where I invite an energy expert back into the studio. Our purpose, as always, is to provide a good understanding of energy management knowledge from around the world, which is available today for us to deliver savings that impact on our planet. On our journey of knowledge sharing, we would like to thank our sponsor, Omlink, who are taking the confusion out of the industry. We'd also like to thank Esther Energy, who are our certificate partners. Today's special guest needs no introduction into our world of renewable energy. He's the host of a renowned podcast with over 500 episodes, and it is called Suncast. Over the last couple of years, he's become my brother from across the pond. So without any further ado, I give you Nico Johnson. Good afternoon, Nico. How are you today? Paul, never better, my friend. It's always great to see you and share share time and space across the ocean. Nico, I've got to admit, I watched the last episode we did together cringed all the way through it my early days of podcasting and you know my success of going through it thank you for sort of edging me on with your kind words well you've come a long way everything from posture to cadence to equipment has improved your studio looks great and uh i i'm a big fan not just of your podcast but all of the ways that you continually reinvent yourself and uh, you do inspire me. I tell you all the time, you inspire me to be a better version of myself. And there are things that you're doing that challenge me who've been, who's been at this for seven years uh, to, to do, look at things differently. You know, off, off camera, we were just having a conversation about YouTube and you have surpassed me in, uh, in, in YouTube presence and, uh, and are teaching me things about how that works, man. So I'm, I appreciate being, in the room with you, as it were. Thank you, Nico. And it's a two-way, it's a two-way uh, sort of uh, messaging, as we always do on our, our WhatsApp on a regular basis. We do need to get together one day and uh, oh, sit we got to make that happen, mate. Absolutely, definitely. Yeah, uh, I watched. Uh, I didn't watch. I listened on a walk. Uh, I listened to that that episode, and uh, yeah, I it, you know episode four it feels like eternity ago. Congratulations, you recently had hundredth uh, episode, hundred and first, I think. Yeah, this is 102, but um, as you say, we might have to break it out to, to match that 104 based on your advice, your marketing you advice. Yeah, and it's been go, more, of a, more than 100 episodes. What have we learned? So firstly, this is, you know, welcome to um, Energy Speaks Back Revisited. And for the benefit of our audience today, this is where I go back and interview these guys again, or all the experts around the world. And one thing I'd like to say, Nico, that wall is still the same wall. Slightly different. It looks a bit darker. I don't know what. what I added this shelf. I added this shelf and uh, a few more books. the The color is the same. What you're What you're seeing is I learned to use my lights. Ah, (laughs) so it is a little darker, but that's so that I may not have had this camera. I'm not really sure if I had this camera. No, the camera looks a bit better. Mm, Yeah, and you know what else is new here? Let me show you this. Since this is since this is YouTube, this is possibly 
the 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 funniest and uh and and best in that way birthday gift I've ever gotten from a client. This is a custom Nico bobblehead. No, <laughs> that is amazing. Oh, if you hopefully if you're listening to this, energy speaks back on on the podcast. This is just motivation for you to jump on YouTube so you can see this ridiculous bobblehead that I love. I keep it on my shelf now. <laughs> that is amazing. I'm gonna have to see if I can get one of those. Yeah, bobble. I think it's. I mean, it's free marketing. Bobbleheads.com. If I'm not sure, mybobblehead.com or something like that. Brilliant. And Nico, you're still standing as well, which is another good point. Yeah, I noticed that we talked about that in the last episode. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't. You know, like I said in that episode, standing is uh, sitting is death. I love. Uh, you know, I love standing. I'm just accustomed to it. I do have. Um, it's slightly off camera. Uh, I have a chair in my office. I do sit throughout the day, but. Uh, I love to stand. It energizes me. The way that clove water energizes you, Paul, standing energizes me. Yeah, yeah. It's funny that they say when you should make sales calls, you should be standing. And I've done that yeah. before, and it, it does make a big impact on what you do. Do you know, do you know what else they, you should do? And I've been in a lot of sales trainings and done a lot of sales calls. You need to have a mirror nearby because you want to be able to – and this is where Zoom really helps – also, a lot of salespeople are narcissistic, so they like to look themselves in the Zoom calls anyway. But being able to see yourself reminds you to lift, to smile, to yeah. look in the camera, yeah. to look in their to look in their eyes, if you, as it were. But even if you're not using a camera, standing, smiling, opening your eyes wide, it makes a difference. People can you can actually feel it on the other end of the call. Mm. So once again, the benefit of our audience today, can you give us some background to yourself? Um, I know Absolutely. not everyone's going to listen to that first episode, but, you know, take it from where you think you need to come from. Yeah, sure, Paul. The The energy transition that we currently are experiencing that feels as though it's a foregone conclusion certainly wasn't always that way. You've been in the energy sector for a long time, Paul, back to your nuclear days. Well, I similarly started in the solar industry back in 2006, coming straight out of uh, Peace Corps, I started a solar company and uh, ran headlong into the global financial crisis, realized that I needed more job security than I could create for myself running my own business. So got a job at a company called Trina Solar at the time. The um, Well, prior to Trina, I had another uh, job where I learned how to do project development. Eventually, I ended up at Trina Solar. I ended up opening up Latin America for Trina and did a bunch of project development and product, model, product sales, uh, solar PV modules, as they're called. Uh, throughout Latin America and and then back here in the United States. And after about a decade of that, I decided to start our podcast, which I started in 2015, as a way to, in some ways, give back. But I realized that I had a unique perspective on the industry that almost felt unfair. I came from humble, poor background, um, well, middle maybe middle income by global standards. And um, I tell about that in episode 500 of the episode of the podcast. If folks want to listen more about that, but I had done some time in in Peace Corps, and I realized that there were a lot of folks trying to get into Latin America and trying to get into the renewable energy game in in general who didn't hadn't figured out how to tap into those markets or how to tap into the mindset of an entrepreneur or a C-suite executive or even entrepreneur uh, roles that are about innovation and creation as we expand beyond fossil fuel into renewable electricity. So I started a podcast called Suncast in 2015. It was very much a brand extension if I had a brand at all for a personal brand. And it was an opportunity to create my own personal platform 
and stand out. I, I always said that I started Suncast because uh, I had access to really important people because of uh, the work that I'd done at Trina, but I was tired of uh, having to hand out another company's business card to be recognized or get validated to get it sort of get into the room as it were. Yeah. And, um, and my mission was to not only create that for myself, but help others feel like they knew more about the industry than their peers and stayed ahead of the curve. I always say we are solar warriors on the front lines of the battle to transition the world off of fossil fuels. And in many ways, Suncast over the years then has uh, evolved into uh, an executive profile of what it looks like to be on the front lines, to start a company in renewables, mostly solar and energy storage throughout most of our 535 episodes now, but also extend an olive branch to our friends in oil and gas and say, hey, here's an easy way to transition. Here's how to identify your, tra trans your transferable skills and to easily picture yourself in the shoes of someone who's a project manager or engineer or accountant uh, or salesperson, business development in renewables because it really is uh, we're in a fight for our lives right now to try and save the planet and i feel like we as content creators paul uh we have a unique opportunity where and a unique vantage point where we can we can raise a standard and raise the alarm as it were and, and give folks a place to focus their attention and a way to learn in an asynchronous way it feels like they're very connected and it knits them together as a community. And so that's what we've been about for the last seven years at Suncast. And um, there's a whole lot more I could tell you about how the business works, the business side of it, but had a lot of fun interviewing the, the founders and executives that are on the front lines changing the global landscape for energy over the last seven years and 535 episodes of Suncast now. That's interesting you say, because when we were done our podcast, it was 320 that's an yeah. awesome amount that's how have you done that yeah, i think how have you done mm, that consistency is key my friend uh i think that the thing that you have to uh if you, if you want to accomplish anything you have to build systems around it yeah and um you know you and i talked about this when you were starting your podcast i said paul the the thing that will be a stranglehold on your uh, ability to produce especially given that you are in full-time business development and business creation through um, B2B energy is if you don't systematize the process. And so I'm very fortunate that we started way earlier than most anybody in the space. So a lot of folks come to us now, but we very much automated the process for us to intake folks that want to be guests and folks that we reach out to that want to be guests um, for us to automate. I've automated all steps of the process of getting onto my calendar. Um, and I apologize to folks that don't like things like Calendly and yeah. uh, and and booking out. Um, that just uh, they ju they're tools that help me to manage being a father of three children, um, running a, a media and marketing business while still trying to keep up two episodes a week. So we produce uh, usually somewhere about nine to twelve weeks out from the publishing date, and that's that was the magic figure. I I realized that if I couldn't get more than six weeks out on content that I just couldn't sustain it because there's invariably a week or two or three that you need to kind of head down, focus on the business. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's how we did it. Built systems and, uh, and, uh, and tried to over time teach other people how to manage those systems so that I could focus on, uh, on the business of creating uh, value for folks that hire us and creating relationships uh, with folks like you. And what are, were there um, tipping points? Because for me, I've done 12 episodes and, yeah, that that become a little bit established, and and now I hit one hundred. I feel a lot different, a lot more confident in what I'm doing, and, and mm. 
you know, it's more known as such when you get to that hundred yeah. value. A hundred episodes is definitely a tipping point for a podcast for sure. Uh, trying to think if I can look behind the question. Are you asking from a content creator perspective or if there was something, if there was a period of time that it felt like it became second nature or easier? What, yeah. what is it? Is it? Okay. <clears throat> so to get to 100, I've, I found for me, I was on this journey. I've hit mm -hmm. 100 now. I now need to set myself new targets, which I've got, yeah. you know, out of the 100, there's 50 people within that group that I want to interview again. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I've yeah. now got this 50 mark in my head, but I'm going to be, be interviewing other people along yeah. the way as well, because we need to keep it fresh. We don't want to just yeah. keep talking about what, what we've done last year. Well, a lot of folks ask, how do you keep, uh, you know, like you said, how have you gone from 320 to 535 in just, in just two years time? Um, the, the answer is that I decided that there were more people than I could interview and there were more inbound than I can handle and that our system can handle those folks getting onto my calendar and that I had clients who had good content that we could redistribute and that mm -hmm. we were doing events that gave me a chance to batch content and that folks were consuming all of the content. The more I put out, the more they consume. So um, I think that as this industry grows, you will also begin to think about how the cadence of your content grows. Um, you know, the one thing I would challenge you with, Paul, is uh, you've got a great thing going with YouTube right now. You've got a great podcast cadence. There's no reason why, uh, absent time limit limitations, your own bandwidth, you wouldn't be able to take this 50 and carve it out for a separate time and date, right? Where you publish that and keep the cadence of Energy Speaks Back doing the same thing and use this as a slightly different look on the industry. It's the follow on. If, if our first conversation was at, was 101, this is the 201. You dive deeper into something that I'm an expert on and that you want to know more about and do that with each of us that you didn't have time for in the first episode. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, it's just, a, it's just a suggestion, but it's an example of how I started to get bored with, Maybe um, bored is probably the wrong word, but just restless with the idea that it, that the the executive profile, the kind of question uh, flow and interview flow that we had carved out, uh, that it was enough. And I started to, you might laugh, but for me, it, I very much used that of interview flow, not as a crutch, but as a guide um, where I would study pretty intently and think a lot about it. And it was very taxing for me through probably 250 or 300 episodes. And around that time, I started to feel pretty free to kind of free form. I knew what my, I was trying to accomplish in the interview, but it took a good 300 episodes to feel confident. And it wasn't until probably episode 450 or so that I would just show up for interviews having done, yeah. knowing that I had already done the work, I'd already done the research, yeah. that it was inside yeah. of me, that I knew what I was searching for in yeah. the conversation and where my audience wanted me to go. And even now I look at the last three months, I took the month of September off and most of October off the interviews I did in August and September. And the ones that our audience is going to hear in November and December are decidedly different in tone and focus and what I'm trying to accomplish. And you'll hear that. So I think the evolution is just in the confidence as 
as a creator, knowing what my audience is looking for, but not in the way, just like, uh, uh, I think, I think it was maybe jobs who said, um, if I'd asked people if they wanted an iPhone, they wouldn't have known that they wanted it. Right. Yeah. Created what they needed. I think that we have a, the privilege of being able to create what we think the industry needs and what, what individuals need, and then finding those audiences, validating that that's what they need. And as we see things like the investment, the inflation reduction act in the United States, throwing you know, trillions of dollars towards our industry, not only are uh, all of the snake oil salesmen going to come out, but all of the really well-meaning and hardworking people are coming to the internet and they're searching YouTube and they're finding your content and mine. And we are very genuinely and, and earnestly helping those seekers find their home in the energy landscape. Mm-hmm. When you was talking about me creating this different uh, sort of parallel mm-hmm. episodes, I was thinking, what, is, what does the industry want? That was the first question mm-hmm. in the back of my mind. What, what should we be doing for the industry? Because it is about, you know, I've, I've actually transcripted all my podcasts now. Yeah. Um, because obviously I'm writing a book around the first 101. Right. Um, obviously there's elements of that I'm taking out or that I'm looking to do. But um, it's what the industry wants from that. And that the amount of content that I look back and I think, that's valuable content mm. for people, mm-hmm. you know? The takeaways that we, you know, there's 101 takeaways there. Obviously, there was some overlaps, but there's some really yeah. great stuff amongst that. Yeah. So how do we help folks capture those takeaways? How do we help them um, without having to listen to all 636 episodes of Suncast and Energy Speaks Back? Is there a way to synthesize that? One of the ways that you do it very well is you write books. Right? Yeah. Uh, I hope that I've got at least one book in me. I certainly have at least one book in the canon of of Suncast so far, but uh, despite I've got yours two books and... coming out before the end of the year, Nico. Amazing, you're a beast, man. I'm telling you, you. Uh, uh, I'm one you of know, them. It's... I'm very proud of is the um, it's the Little Orange Dinghy. It's a children's book I've written. Yeah, I'm really wow. um, looking forward to that. And I've got another one coming out in Easter, which is going to be the Little Orange EV car. Because we need to be promoted that to children yeah. to let them know. I can see the brand. I can see the brand management coming through. For B2B. So, I just love uh, orange. I just love orange. It's quite, Everything's it's quite all right. I had an orange lounger. shirt on before this. You should have told me that I had an orange shirt on, but it, it clashes with the yellow. So. It does a bit. It does yeah. a bit. So, so I, wore Nico, my, I wore my Willy Wonka suit for you. Now we're talking colors, okay? You hmm. said I'm from, is it North Carolina? Um, yeah, I'm from the Carolinas here. In, and in you kept going Southeast. on about it's a bit of blue. It's a bit of blue. And that was uh, mm. the link between the two. Because we're right in the middle of the Trump and the Biden thing, and obviously yeah, the, the then, election. Since mm. then, it's it's gone to the Biden. Tell us about what's going on on in your world regarding the Biden world as such now. Yeah, fascinating. So, at uh, you know, we were it was November twenty twenty, which is the time most folks in the world probably remember was when we had our elections to uh, to elect now President Biden, and uh, and and everyone was very hopeful. I'm very hopeful for what a Biden administration would mean for renewables. Obviously, uh, if you're if you're listening as a global audience and you're unfamiliar in the United States, we have two par- a two party system: Democrats and Republicans. Democrats are use the use the color blue, and Republicans use the color red. So there are red states and blue states. Where I live is kind of a little pocket of blue inside of a big state that is mostly red in North Carolina, mostly Republican led and um, and uh, and mindset, as it were. 
Republicans are conservative, Democrats are progressive. Uh, all of the things that we all therefore think about globally with regards now to conservative and progressive sort of match. Uh, it's pretty similar in the UK, similar in Brazil, where Lula just won again and, and ousted Bolsonaro, who we hope will uh, will accept the the votes or the election results. Um, folks like uh, Jigger Shaw, who <clears throat> at the time was and remains was one of the biggest thought leaders for renewables, is now leading the U.S. government's Department uh, uh, of Energy loan office, uh, many billions of dollars of loan guarantees that he's providing there for uh, erstwhile entrepreneurs in the space. And as I mentioned a minute ago, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, what has been called the $370 billion surprise goodie bag of climate tech provisions, in, and, uh, we're, and we're still sifting through what all it means. I, I want to give a nod, by the way, to uh, a thought leader that I've been following and just really enjoying her content, and that's someone named Sophie Purdom. So most of what you'll hear uh, of, of anything, of, of what I kind of understand about the Inflation Reduction Act is what I've distilled from other creators that I love and investors that I follow, uh, David Roberts, uh, a.k.a. Dr. Volts with his uh, volts.wtf, and, um, and Sophie Purdom, who is uh, one of the co-founders of Climate Tech VC. Uh, they've got some great content that I refer to pretty regularly, but there is, um, there's a ton of money going towards energy and transportation, the built environment, energy storage, which now has a standalone credit, uh, it, which itself is going to be sort of industry and game changing. There's a lot for ag and land use, environmental justice, and so much more. So it's been a great two years, Paul. We got two years more. And, uh, has that been and driven by, seems- by the Biden team? Yes. So this was driven by, uh, by the Biden administration. Yeah. Uh, it was originally called the, and uh, let me think if I see if I can remember it was the in, uh, why am I blanking on the terminology infrastructure tax bill, right? It was a huge infrastructure tax bill that they've been trying to get pushed through that had a big, uh, uh, a lot of climate provisions and, uh, presently, there was finally bipartisan support uh, held out primarily by a, a congressman from West Virginia, um, Joe Manchin, who uh, who finally came to the table with the concessions that he was looking for, and they're not insignificant. But yes, the Biden administration and the now infamous Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, which is now uh, a law, and we're waiting on a lot of the things to be uh, from the 725-page document to be distilled into guidance uh, so that and regulations so that we can actually go after some of the funding for it. I think it's going to create the greatest transfer of wealth that the energy sector has seen perhaps ever because it incentivizes uh, it incentivizes clean energy, it incentivizes climate reduction activity and and it's a clear signal to those in the fossil fuel industry. Uh, while still giving them a lot of concessions for how they, uh, for how existing infrastructure in the fossil fuel industry is meaningful to the transition, uh, it incentivizes those who base their business on fossil fuel and carbon production to engage in the reduction of both of those things. Right, interesting. And <clears throat> when we talk about the the crisis uh, across Europe regarding the energy crisis, I, have you got impact of that in the states? 
regarding sort of gas supplies and things? You know, it uh, it definitely impacted price at the at the pump, and um, yeah, think that was global. <clears throat> There's mm -hmm. a global uh, ripple effect, knock-on effect, that isn't nearly as say uh, acute as it is being felt in Eastern Europe and the and the larger European bloc. Yeah, but but yeah, when you consider that fossil fuels and in particular natural gas drive a lot of um, a lot of infrastructure. And a lot of the fossil industry, um, not to, not the least of which our transportation industry, is impacted when there is a major constriction in the fossil fuel flow. Yeah, we feel it here in the United States. What it has done, I think that we it could be argued in three to five years' time, if not now, that the Inflation Reduction Act would have never occurred. It wouldn't have been a thing if not for the Ukraine right. crisis uh, and the energy crisis happening <clears throat> broadly in the in the EU, um, which may which may be the one of the greatest um, sort of interesting. I don't know if you'd call it an irony, but yeah, interesting yeah. correlations. Uh, yeah. But in in it in a, as a result, we are now releasing from our reserves more uh, millions of barrels of oil that we had had sort of hold up in reserves uh, to ease the effect on our local, uh, our domestic gasoline prices. And it's worth mentioning as we sit here October 31st, uh, that in, in exactly a week's time, we'll be voting in our midterm elections. And there's a pretty steep correlation between uh, things like gas prices and re-election of the incumbent party. Yeah, so. Yeah. There's a there's a concerted effort on both sides to uh, both do the right thing, but also move the needle on on the things that matter to voters, and uh, and certainly that is uh, that has been an impact. It was a huge impact here all through the summer. I remember. I don't know what the, what are the prices per liter for you in the UK? So we did for, see for we see it increase to um, two pound a liter. Mm -hmm. um, it's recently dropped back down to 160 it's still high but it was it's eased so yeah. uh, um so I, I used to fill my car up for 100 pounds in the in the crisis time and it's yeah. now 65 70 pounds to fill it up i'm tailed back up. to where i used to bill used to be yeah so uh and i don't remember what the exchange rate is now for the pound it's changed a little bit a little bit in the, yeah since we we've, last uh, we've gone a bit weak against you the dollar the dollar yep. is very strong yeah. against that so might be folks, due to our crazy parliament at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Most folks are, um, yeah, might be. Most folks are uh, are paying somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, just under $5 a gallon, I think, for gasoline right. here in the United States. So that's about uh, somewhere over a $1.25-ish, $1.30 a liter, I think, something like that. Right. Um, and no, is that right? No, it'd be more than that. It's almost. So do you guys still have gallons? Liter. Yeah, we still use gallons. Wow, yeah. yeah. Do you use gallons in the no, UK? No, we 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 uh, we got sucked into the European side, didn't we? So, so it's, what's interesting is we still carry on those uh, that that you that British tradition yeah. of the imperial units. Yeah, yeah. In in every respect, it's crazy, uh, from isn't gallons it? to yards to uh, to ounces. There's so many things that that we use in the United States, and I spent a lot of time in Latin America. And have a lot of friends in in Europe, and it is really funny how we still have to do those calculations for 
uh, for imperial units to to metric. Yeah, I mean, I'm in no man's land because I was the yards going into the meters. Uh, my sons are totally meters, and they laugh at me when I talk inches and yards. But I'm in between where I can do sort of both as such. Yeah. Um, at any rate, it's uh, yeah, it's just under five dollars a gallon. I have no idea what that is, honestly, right. uh, in in do- in pounds per liter. But uh, it was as high as uh, nine dollars a gallon this summer, which is astronomical. And that was kind of in the most expensive places for gas in the United States, in California. But um, but it had a big impact. To answer your original well, question, we've um, from our point of view, energy's basically gone through the roof we've seen 450 percent increases in energy um at on our bills on our meters basically both gas and electricity he's been absolutely crazy and so probably this time when we had our last interview we was probably looking at 18 pence a unit but now we're looking at nearly one pound 25 kilowatt hour so we've we've got some tough times still ahead of us. The government stepped in and done some capping, um, but it's all knee jerk stuff. We need some form of, and that's only going to last until April next year. So it's a starting point of where we are with that. So <clears throat> Nico, I remember, and I listened to the uh, podcast, you talked a, a little bit about ESG. Mm-hmm. And at the time, <laughs> I'll be honest, I was nodding, yeah, yeah, Nico, ESG, and I had heard <laughs> of it. But I thought that was basically in America. We are now seeing that in the UK. That's yeah. transferred over to us a lot now. And we're seeing that globally. Everyone's talking about it um, on LinkedIn and in our circles. What's, uh, what's been the impact for you personally? Are you, you getting involved with that? You know, personally, I'm not involved as much in broadly speaking in ESG, uh, environment, social and government, so, and social governments for corporates. But the interesting thing is to see how, uh, all of my podcast guests are and how it's impacting their business, how it's impacting for the benefit, uh, mm-hmm. you know, folks in the media industry who are attracting the large corporates who recognize that it, uh, it ties directly back to their, um, to, to their wall street metrics now. We're seeing, uh, you know, co- companies like Walmart tie their performance to scope yeah. one, scope two, and scope three emissions. Yeah, uh, they are they're focused on uh, the concept of ESG as a ma- as a uh, management metric, and and Wall Street is pricing uh, risk into the market based on ESG metrics that are coming to that are coming to light. So that was something that we probably, I can't remember exactly what we talked about in our last call about it, other than that it is, it is something that I saw as a trend. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we toyed with the idea of doing a podcast dedicated to ESG and the reality is we probably could have done that, but there ended up being a ton of folks that jumped on the ESG podcast bandwagon. I'm glad that I didn't choose that. We've always been able to sort of pick our niche and dominate it. Um, Everybody now talks about ESG. You go to any conferences, it's always tip of tongue. There are, in fact, conferences dedicated to the topic. And uh, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's going anywhere. It ha- the industry has finally come up with a way to measure and monetize the, uh, the impact of environmental governance and stewardship 
in uh, in a corporate environment, and that effect, that functionally is what ESG stands for now. Yeah. <clears throat> so from my point of view, the I I'm heavily involved with the E, the environmental, the energy management mm -hmm. side. That's yep. where I tap into. However, now my clients are driving me into the the climate world and having to report on scopes one, two, and three. So that we are slowly, and it's all linked to the net zero, you know, organizations wanting to understand their climate footprint. Um, and I was quite shocked where the, where the climate footprint actually starts and where it finishes. Yeah. It doesn't, it's quite a wide range of, you know, how much CFCs you're getting rid of um, in the atmosphere. And it, it's, I was quite shocked really recently of, of how that maps out. Yeah. For me, scope one, scope two, electricity, gas, how much energy, um, you're using on your transport and then then your third parties as such but i yeah. was quite shocked with that recently yeah it comes up in a lot of our um um in a lot of our conversations with folks that are looking at how they why they're going solar why their clients are going solar and how um solar and broader renewables energy storage uh, electric vehicles factor into corporate sustainability and it's more than just what we called csr in the last 20 years corporate social yeah. responsibility totally. it's far more than than just csr but how do you actually create measurement around the behavior and you know i think wall street uh, again as i said i'm not an expert on this but there there is such a thing as an esg score and that that scorecard allows wall street to as i said before price risk and it allows folks to hold companies accountable to to doing the right thing and uh you're seeing as a result a lot more uh of of funds in particular divesting from uh from carbon intensive processes and companies that they otherwise held in their portfolio i was with an investment company uh, recently there's one of our clients and they said that the the organizations they were working with regarding investments come in and had a Q&A session with them regarding their due diligence. And the main focus was on ESG. Yeah. Totally, mm. 100%. That's trying to understand that score and trying to understand what it means to their bottom line. Yeah. 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 It's like and, anything and, else, And what are they going to get you in bed You have to gamify it. Sorry. I said it's like everything else. You have to gamify it. It's like getting your kids to eat dinner. Yeah, it is. Um. There's one more thing I wanted to pick up on our last interview, and we talked about the return on investment and creating the driver for renewables uh, specifically. Um, yeah, and that's disappeared for us because mm -hmm. the return on investment is disappearing because we've got so high energy costs. Ah. Do you think that's still a driver within the energy sector? Uh, the, R the ROI of renewables? Yeah. Well, the cost of energy, while it is continuing to increase, is subsidized in many other ways in in other places like in the United States. Um, the return on that investment is definitely a driver. I don't think that people are doing it simply to achieve certain, to our previous conversation, ESG metrics. Yeah. Uh, rather, they are looking at the inevitability that um, they need a resilient uh, often microgrid level functionality for their core assets and for infrastructure to operate regardless of the fluctuation of the grid. M you know, if you look at, uh, if you look at the, 
I think everything is driven off of return on investment. It just is a question of what do you consider to be the alternative to the investment, right? But if you look at the California wildfire as a great example, uh, PG&E started doing rolling, effectively rolling blackouts where they can force you to, to yeah. shut down and they'll make a call out to, uh, to the state, uh, to, to citizens to turn down their loads. And as a result, they're now paying for storage assets to provide uh, support to the grid, uh, all, lots of different grid services. Um, the return on investment of those assets as standby power is now has now greatly increased. So those who made a bet on it early and were able to appreciate the first few years of personal benefit on site, uh, in particular corporations in California now who have storage and solar assets, um, software companies have come to the market to innovate and help them uh, determine how to uh, aggregate and resell those assets. In the United States, it's a market now called Distributed Energy Resources, right? DERS. And it's a fascinating market where uh, companies like Seapower and Voltus are clearly creating a ton of value for mm. existing distributed assets on the grid. I think that's, that's, a, that's not just a U.S. phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon that is going to continue to increase. And the reason that these energy managers and corporations make those investments is that they see a clear return on that investment, both from an investor, if they're a public traded company, an investor return on uh, sort of the vision and value of the business, as well as a return a return on the on the reduction of net uh, of net operating expenses. Right, a lot of these companies, especially if they're publicly traded, have a multiple on uh, NOI or net operating income, and there's there's almost no better tool they can use than reduction of their variable energy expense to a fixed cost to give them guaranteed asset value by reducing their net operating costs, increasing the net operating mm -hmm. income, thereby increasing their valuation of the business. And the, you talked about the assets. What are the assets? Solar, batteries, et cetera? Yeah, I think, it, well, it really depends on who we're referring to here. Uh, I'll look through the lens of, uh, if we just look through the lens of the Inflation Reduction Act here in the United States, uh, there are uh, there are different ways to generate electricity, and those are assets. The The solar power plant itself, whether it's at a micro level, a local level on your rooftop, or at large grid, grid scale utility level, you know, hundreds of megawatts uh, itself is an asset. The electrons coming off of that project, right? So you, you actually get project level debt against the 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 income streams from the electrons and against the hardware that's in the field mm -hmm. so the electrons coming off are an asset that now with one other really interesting and and this is an evolution since we talked in 2020 as well um is well, what do we do with these electrons if if electrons we talked about this in a series that i'll reference in a minute but if electrons are can become essentially free what does it open up in terms of infrastructure we can build that will and now allow us to rapidly scale uh, deployment of carbon-free energy and, uh, and carbon-free industry, right? And there are a lot of hard-to-abate industries like the transportation, mostly heavy, uh, heavy industry transportation, so cargo and um, airlines and, and things like that, uh, ships. There is the steel industry. There is the 
which itself is hard to abate. There's the ammonia, ammonia industry and night. And so like the farming, certain sectors of farming and, um, and products that go into farming. Um, and for years and years, hydrogen has been a huge catalyst, a, a huge contributor or part or sort of a component in, uh, all of those industries as an input in some form or other. Uh, we covered in December of last year in a six part, five part series called our, called the green hydrogen series. What I've seen as I think the most exciting, uh, and rapidly growing trend in, uh, the energy sector probably, and certainly in renewable energy, and that is green hydrogen. So your question again is what are the assets, the assets, the assets are the hard assets to generate electricity. They're the, uh, the software and the intermediary assets like hydrogen electrolyzers that convert and, and, uh, and distribute that electricity. And increasingly we're seeing, uh, now is certainly a result of almost one-to-one -one result of, uh, the, the energy crisis in Europe right now. Um, end of line assets like heat pumps that I know you talk a lot with your clients about that are seeing a renaissance in the market um, because they are what you do with that energy when it arrives to your to your plant to your home to the place the uh, the point of use so efficiency of using those electrons and then I think a fourth category that we often overlook that is uh, is is not without um, its merit and that is the human capital, the human assets, right? So we talk in the energy sector a lot about stranded assets. Yeah, yeah. And that is like these coal plants or, um, or nuclear facilities that didn't make it to the end of their life. And so they've got technical useful life, but they're, uh, they're decommissioned before, so before the end of life, or you can't use all the power for X or Y reason that power is stranded. That's a stranded asset. Um, if you think about that model, there are millions of stranded assets right now <laughs> that hundreds of thousands that have turned into millions that want to do something good for the planet and good for their legacy and their family. And those are the humans involved in helping us generate electricity for what has become our, you know, our industrial revolution, a lot revolutionized uh, lifestyles. And so many people like you, Paul, when you started joined the energy industry, looking at that 30, 40, 50 year tenure, the gold watch, the retirement, all of the, ways that they could contribute through these big companies like ExxonMobil um, for a career. And they've realized that they've been let down just like the rest of us by, uh, by the, the traditional fossil industry and in that they don't have a job anymore. They don't have that future anymore or that runway. And so I'll just put a cap on this sort of long rant with the humans in this equation are the true assets because that transferable skill set can be utilized and is being underutilized in the energy transition. And, uh, and that's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about at Suncast and helping clients as well. And our, as our community think about how do you, how do you help all these people that want to, they want to move out of tech. They don't like working at Twitter or maybe they got their cardboard box from Elon last week. Um, uh, they, they were at Chevron or Exxon and now they, they see the opportunity and they want to work in the clean energy transition. They want to contribute towards a world that mitigates climate change, not, not, not propagates it. I love the word stranded asset because it, it, <laughs> so I was obviously I done my training and my started my career at Bradwell nuclear power station. And you may have seen one of my posts last summer. I went back to Bradwell nuclear power station. Mm -hmm. There's three employees there. 
security no. staff. The whole thing's boxed up. It looks like a yeah. big silver box. Okay. Wow. All the turbine halls, all the admin area, all the workshops, gone. When I look at that area, I think you could put loads of solar around that. You could put solar across the roof down. Mm. They've got an infrastructure there. They've got pylons that run from probably 50 miles from that spot all the way um, back into the city as such. That used to feed energy. That used to power all the local towns around it. And it doesn't know more. And massive interconnections that are already approved. Exactly. All signed off. One point, I think it was 138 KV cables. That's one of the things that's that you're seeing as it's a it's one of those things that Joe mentioned, I think smartly worked into the hang on. Something just was smoking in my office and I don't know what it is. <laughs> I think the the candle I had lit uh just finally gave up uh okay. gave up the ghost. That was that was a little scary. That's good. So smartly worked into the IRA uh is that there will be additional incentives for folks that build on um traditional fossil fuel sites old coal plants, um, natural gas sites. And it makes sense, right? Because yeah. a lot of subsidized uh, tax dollars have mm. gone into setting aside those assets, those, those, th- that property, and creating the distribution infrastructure to get that electricity somewhere. And it doesn't make any sense to... Uh, also, you talked about the people as well. Those people uh-huh. in that power station, they migrated that... They, so qualified electricians, right. uh, instrument, they stayed there life. as... They were the people that decommissioned the place. So they become health and safety or they come, yeah. you know, um, health physics, which were the people yeah. that done all the, the checks on the radiation, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah. What a waste it, of career for them. Yeah. And it's, and it's not, it's no small thing to have folks move their family and set up their livelihood and, and often in places that aren't um, cultural population centers. Right. Yeah. Um, all through what we call Appalachia, which is just a mountain range here that goes up into uh, Ohio, as far as Ohio, um, there are coal towns that um, have all but been stranded and abandoned. And uh, and we have actively, you know, there are um, there are organizations in our industry that are actively retraining all of those coal miners, all of those coal plant operators in how to incorporate their skills into uh, what we like to call lovingly the clean energy revolution. Right, Paul? <laughs> It's um, a journey, as I like to say. So, yeah. Nico, um, it's been great hearing some of these stories um, and, and talking about our last episode. Um, and I'm, even while I've been talking to you, I've, I've, I've remarketed it in my head. So thank you very much for that. So, Nico, last time we spoke, it was giving something back to the industry. But all I want really, we've got a global range of people that listen to this global audience. We've got the global team of the um, the clean energy revolution that obviously follow us. And when I posted that picture the other day of us to the yourself, mm-hmm. the change, um, we had a, a lot of interest and engagement. So is this something that you know? There's a lots of different generations as well amongst our team at different levels. Is there anything that you could give us some advice to those coming through the industry? For folks that are looking at the clean energy sector, there, I think that a lot of folks have a hard time figuring out where do I start? 
So I'm going to start with the best advice that I got around, uh, around career change from a guest on Suncast uh, many hundreds of episodes ago now. And he said, you, <clears throat> when changing jobs, if you want to change into different industry, never change two aspects of your career. <laughs> so uh, you can change... And you can change industry or, um, or focus, but never both at the same time. And what that means is for those who are looking at coming over to clean energy, for example, I see a lot of folks that maybe have done, um, they've done uh, marketing or they've done uh, finance. Think, think, think in terms of uh, domain expertise, accounting, finance, yeah. marketing, uh, and they will try to go over and do business development for a solar company because that's what was offered to them. Um, and that's, if you can get an offer like that, you might want to take it just so you can have a learning experience. But the reality is that's a bad bet for you. And it's a bad bet for the company hiring you. Mm -hmm. You want to transfer as many of your prior skills as possible. So if you've been working in procurement for Chevron or for Baker Hughes or for any other oil and, you know, oil and gas company, you are a, highly valued asset in procurement and renewables. Just make the switch, keep yeah. procurement. Um, yeah. In a year or two, you'll probably be very, very clear on where else you can sort of migrate your skills, how you can bolt on new skills, right? So that's the main thing is if you are trying to come over and you are currently in marketing and you somehow feel like marketing isn't enough for you, get just trust me that you have enough lat you have enough opportunity to engage in lateral thinking from the industries that you've been learning from by coming over to renewables and applying what you already take for granted about how marketing is done in your sector and um and as such i would encourage you to just think in that way that's number one number two plug in to the communities that that paul and i can connect you to we have our uh, our whatsapp group uh clean energy revolution we're both very very active on linkedin i think there's not a platform uh out there right now from a social media perspective that's better than linkedin for networking paul you exactly. have gone from zero followers to over thirty thousand followers in the last two years which itself is a tremendous uh uh achievement a lot of folks i remember we talked about this early on paul and i'm saying this for the benefit of the listeners you felt almost um Ashamed, like uh, like it was egoic somehow for you to pursue trying to get 30, 30, 40, 50,000 followers, right? There's this, there is this sense of self-deprecation that we engage in and allow ourselves to believe yeah. that we should only connect if we've met someone in, in person or if we've done business with them. And let me just sort of break that mold and paradigm. And that is the more people you're connected to on LinkedIn and or, and or who follow you, the wider your visibility is and the more uh, audience you can get when you have something to say. Mm. Um, and then I guess the third thing, uh, and, and so the, on point number two, Paul and I can connect you to really good communities of folks that know their stuff and just look for mentors in those groups. Look for ways that you can help. Yeah. And that, that tees up point number three, which is figure out what it is that you can offer, even in the smallest way. Uh, a great example um, is a, a young man named Emmanuel who uh, is a part of our Clean Energy Revolution group. He posted into our group that he was doing podcast notes for uh, a legal podcast out in Africa. Well, 
he's been helping us with timestamps and podcast notes behind the scenes for months now Brilliant. at Suncast. Brilliant. And as a result, man, I would connect that guy with anybody he asked for, you know? Um, and, and it was just for him deciding, okay, here's one small way I can help you. I'm not going to ask for anything in return, not even compensation candidly. And then we started, um, you know, we had that conversation as well, but find ways that you can contribute from your domain expertise, from something that you, without, without asking for anything in return, just give to the community. And this community, unlike many other communities, uh, begins to feel very small. It begins to feel very familial and, uh, and, and it will give back to you in uh in equal or greater measure exactly it's called givers gain yeah givers okay. gain that's right givers gain. bob berg has a book called the go givers and i would i would encourage that anyone to read that <laughs> one as well we, we was offline comparing the books we were reading nico we, <laughs> we get so many books readers. <laughs> yeah Paul, i always get my uh, my wish reader. list i always get my wish list from nico he mm. often sends me a message to say i'm reading this you need to read this yeah, and I, you, my friend, you, uh, you turned me on to who's in your room, and that's a book that I would recommend to anyone. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So, Nico, look, it's been really great. Thank you for sharing, and you know, thank you for being you. You know, you was you when I interviewed you. If that makes sense. You know, there's there's an edge with you, Nico, and I really like that, and that's why I think um, I have pleasure in interview. You're such an easy interviewer because mm, you are you. an interviewer. So yeah. thank you for that today. It's yeah. been a great pleasure. Well, Paul, I want to thank you as well. It takes tremendous courage to turn on the mic, as they say, to turn on, to press record. Uh, it's no small feat to get to 100. I'd love to turn the mic on you at some point. Time didn't allow us today. I had several things I was going to sort of dig in on and uh, force you into the uncomfortable world of me interviewing you, um, which, which we've done. And, and they can listen yeah. to that on the Suncast podcast as well. Uh, but I just want to commend you, my friend, because... I genuinely mean it when I say that uh, there are only a handful of folks in the world that I consider both a peer and a mentor, and you've been both to me. You've, you. you've pushed me. You have challenged me. I've said to my wife, like, this bloke Paul over in the UK, like this guy uh, is, is, is doing circles around me and writing books and publishing things on YouTube and, and, not, and genuinely not being hung up the way I can often become, and I would say this for your listeners' benefit as a telltale sign, on being perfect. You are a great example of done is better than perfect. And that's what makes you faster than most, and that's what helps you iterate better than most. And uh, my hat's off to you, my friend. I hope for 400 more, and uh, I hope to be uh, involved in and supporting you in whatever ways that I can. I'll always be in your mirror. Nico, don't worry. <laughs> uh, that's just a numbers just game looking. right there. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I love it. <clears throat> when I push record, I always say, I didn't say it today. I love, I always say to people that are not used to this, mm. just to get them eased, I always say, I love this bit. And I said, look, excuse me, I will turn into someone different throughout yeah. this podcast. So true. I do. It's brilliant. It's true. I love it. Yeah, it's true. It changes you and it gives you a different perspective. It gives you a lot more empathy, I think. Yeah, And I would encourage folks to, to think about ways to create content. Creating forces you into a thinking mode that very few other activities do. And it, it forces you to organize your thoughts. Um, so thank you, Paul, for having me on. Uh, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to try and emulate more of how you are showing up in the world. Thank you, Nico. That means a lot to me. And 
Nico, please, you and your family stay safe in these times. Likewise, my friend.